Predicting the spread of COVID-19 is not easy. The best methods we have available require us to extrapolate trends from a large volume of data, and this requires the construction of large-scale models. Because of the expertise needed for developing these models, Silicon Valley engineers were brought in to help develop a maintainable model. Two of these engineers are Josh Wills and Sam Shaw, and they join the show to talk about the engineering behind the COVID model and their work to help build it. Guys, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's great to be here as well. So we have two of you. Josh, you've been on the show before, so we're familiar with each other. What have you been doing since COVID? Very little, like broadly speaking. I've been, I tried a job doing self-driving car stuff and failed. It turns out they did not need my help for anything. And then aside from that, I've been investing and advising, which is just the things you say when you're an unemployed person in San Francisco. So yeah. And Sam? Yeah, likewise, investing and advising the trifecta of uh, the Silicon Valley hierarchy of needs of basically uh, (laughs) saying that I'm not really doing anything much right now, but I'd recently sold the company. So kind of figuring out the next thing. Well, let's talk about something totally unrelated to investing and advising. What do you guys see as the primary problems faced by epidemiologists today? Oh, it's a great question. I mean, I think the answer is that public policy officials don't listen to them as much as they should. (laughs) What about more technical, like realistic problems? Well, Sam, what do you think? I think there are a couple of things, right? One, which is like the quality of the data. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, it's actually, if you look at uh, pulling things out of public health systems, like the, the data is, is quite messy and quite difficult. I mean, it's like 100 lines of epic just to get any reasonable like, kind of information out of anything, which is very challenging. And then you have this massive kind of data in- integration problem um, to pull all those kind of data sources together. I think the other piece around epidemiology and kind of software is that like, I mean, they're fantastic at epidemiology, and it's really good that the software stack has gotten a lot better for them to do things. You know, we have R, we have Python, we have Docker, and they can like do all these, and a lot of open source and a lot of kind of tools that are there. I think there's still a gap between like the language that they use and the language of software. So they can't like exactly map what they want to do onto software, right? So even running things like in the cloud or in AWS, like what services should you use to connect things together? A software person really gets that, but an epidemiologist, it's still like, okay, I'm, I know how to do things in R, but like, how do I go beyond that? And there's still that big gap of like, how do you do that, you know, for either dealing with more data or doing things which, you know, are more difficult around like more memory than you have on your single machine. Right. And that's kind of a classic problem that, uh, lot of data scientists face, but I think epidemiologists are like adjacent to data scientists and they they also don't like speak the language and have the vernacular to connect and really understand what they want to do, right? So I think it's like a bridging of the gap that needs to happen between um, software and epidemiologists to like be able to be, I think, a lot more effective. And the gap is closed quite a bit, right? Like people use GitHub, um, Docker and things like that. But really, you know, using all the powerful tools that you want, I think, would be very challenging. Like getting epidemiology to use Spark, for example, would be an incredible Herculean effort for them. Um, and what they probably want to do is relatively simplistic. And I mean, in big data sense, but they just can't get that can't, can't get that done, right? Yeah. How can the technology world help epidemiologists? It's a great question. Like giving that some thought right now. Like how do we how do we make the good news is that, as, as Sam said, like 
assuming an epidemiologist and a data scientist are pretty substantial. I mean, it's, it wouldn't shock me if there were quite a few epidemiologists out there who became professional data scientists for one reason or another, in the same way that like astronomers or physicists or sociologists or whatever all have become data scientists. I think in the context of COVID, I think the thing that was missing and, and sort of the gap that, that Sam and I and, and our colleagues had to fill was being kind of like cloud experts at the ready. You know, like there isn't a, so generally speaking, if you're an epidemiologist and you're working in in academia, you file a grant, grant request, you get your grant fulfilled. Part of that grant, you'll get some software, you'll get some hardware. But generally speaking, at least as far as I know, uh, getting access to like cloud resources is not generally part of something you do as part of like filing a grant. And so because of that, they don't have a ton of experience using all of the great resources in the cloud and getting access to this stuff to do their work. So Sam said it's a knowledge problem, it's a resource problem. Um, And I think having the various cloud providers provide that expertise, or at least have it at the ready, really for like epidemiologists and all kinds of scientists um, would be incredibly valuable. Yeah, Sam? No, I think that's right. Even if they had access to the cloud, I'm not sure what they would know what to do with it and what is possible, right? So um, it's almost like a failure to imagine because they don't understand the capabilities, right? And so you need to be able to have, I think there's a translation that needs to happen between these kind of software, specifically infrastructure people and epidemiologists, right? And like once that tight coupling becomes, I think, much more tighter, I think they could like really understand what it means to run something on like a thousand computers, right? What could you actually do if you could do that? Right. And how to do that exactly. Yeah. Right. Tell me a little bit more about how you guys have gotten involved with helping epidemiologists. Yeah, Sam, why don't you get it started? Yeah. So like, I think, like we mentioned earlier, you know, Josh and I were both kind of investing and advising, doing a little bit of traveling. And then like everyone else, COVID hit. We both knew a bunch of people in the uh, California government and specifically, you know, people that were working on uh, modeling and understanding the epidemic. They had some basic kind of model. They had a difficulty kind of getting it to scale and run in a sufficient amount of time so they could iterate on it, right? The, uh, the model for California, for example, would take like six to eight hours to run. A model for the entire United States would take four to five days to run. And then in a fast moving epidemic, that is like, you know, not sufficient to deal with any sort of real uh, question coming down the pike from our leaders. And so we kind of came in and helped with the California Department of Public Health to kind of go and figure out how could we do this a lot more effectively. And basically what happened was, you know, there was part of the California Department of Public Health, the CDPH, they were working with people at Johns Hopkins on a way to kind of model this epidemic. But they had no real software distributed systems people. Um, and so, you know, Josh and I and, and a bunch of other people actually came, came together to, you know, bridge the gap there and, and provide that the ability to run the model much more efficiently, much more faster. Um, and really what that happened was, is, that, you know, in the early parts of the epidemic, think like March 16th, earlier this year, do you remember kind of what well, put things in context? The state of the world was, you know, California was trying to understand the, the epidemic. I think California at the time had like 18 deaths. The entire United States had less than 500 deaths. But everyone had seen things that have been going on in Wuhan. 
They also saw, th- saw things in Northern Italy where like hospitals were being overrun. And then you started to hear things kind of in New York City, hospitals were starting to scramble to kind of get bed capacity, right? And so really what you wanted to do was get a picture of this epidemic and how it would affect uh, California, right? There was no wide-scale testing. The CDC hadn't approved any tests yet. And so really what we wanted to do was build a model that coronavirus task force, you know, Governor Newsom could use to understand how this epidemic would work, right? There were some, you know, open source or public projections, but they were missing a few kind of key ingredients, right? One, which was everything was done at like an aggregate state level, but nobody lives in the aggregate. I really need to understand things like a county or, you know, a zip code kind of level. The other piece is we needed to, you know, model and understand critical resources like ICU beds and ventilators. And the third piece is we need to understand and like forecast or scenario plan how mitigation steps could could affect the epidemic, right? So what if we had uh, masking in rural counties and we shut down schools in urban counties? It's just an example, right? If you could try different kinds of scenarios and see how that's going to affect the epidemic, you can now plan and and more effectively understand things. And again, understand things at the county level. So you could do things um, at a per county level. Um, And so really what we ended up helping out with was this, you know, ragtag group of like, you know, CDPH officials, John Hopkins epidemiologists, and then Silicon Valley kind of engineers to, you know, retrofit and kind of operationalize uh, a model of the epidemic, right? And this was basically, um, I would put it akin to like a startup experience where like, and this is actually pretty close to what it was like, was like Saturday, you interview for the job, Sunday, you, you're hired, um, Monday is the first day of work, but there's a critical business issue that you, in an unknown domain that you need to solve right away in a couple of days. You need to show something to your CEO or board, right? Immediately. You need to boot up like a new whole sense of knowledge and new software stack, working with a whole new set of colleagues. And we, we kind of were able to, you know, it was a deep sense of mission and kind of grind it out. It was a couple of all-nighters to really get this kind of model together. And really what we ended up doing was showing to the governor staff kind of different kind of projections of like how the epidemic would spread. One, which is if you did kind of nothing, the unmitigated scenario. Another one would be like if you did a Wuhan-like kind of lockdown, which is, you know, not possible in democracy, but that gives you like the lower bound, right? And then the unmitigated gives you upper bound. And then we said, okay, could we do a middle of the road solution, which was more like how San Francisco had begun to shut down, could we use a San Francisco approach to like the rest of the state? And there wasn't a lot of data there. So the epidemiologist kind of modeled it as like Kansas City from 1918, and they did a really, really good stuff. And what it ended up being is, you know, like this kind of project where I think someone described it as the epidemiology Olympics, where you're kind of doing like basic epidemiology. And we were doing basic distributed systems, but together, you know, the amalgamation of that was able to develop like a pretty sophisticated a model of like uh, how ventilators, ICU capacity, you know, infections, deaths, et cetera. And we actually helped, you know, devise a report that ended up helping convince the governor to issue like the first shelter in place order in the country. And then there's a recent study that came out from Berkeley in nature, I think uh, maybe two months ago or so that said that, you know, the this kind of early shelter in place saved about 1.7 million infections by early April. Um, so that was like amazing that like, you know, we were able to help and provide, you know, relatively 
not sophisticated, but like just kind of straightforward computer science, straightforward distributed systems work. But the the joining of all these kind of groups of people together to like create something really valuable was like an immense and amazing experience that we were able to kind of have that that kind of outcome. Tell me about some of the challenges you faced in building the model. Yeah, I think like Sam said, the onboarding experience was pretty intense. And I think we've all had the experience of, you know, you're at a new company, you're at a new startup. And job one, obviously, is to get the product built locally and like up and running and stuff like that, right? And especially when you're the first, like you're, you're an early engineer, you're the first non-nerd to show up. A lot of the work around like how to get this thing running, what dependencies you need in place, how, how does the build system work, how does how do the tooling work? is often tribal knowledge and is not documented. Um, and that was very much the case here. Um, so our first job, like first and foremost, right, was just to get to a point where we could run things, right, and sort of suss out all of these implicit dependencies in the Python and R code that the epidemiologists were using to run these models. So they, they had built these models a long time ago. And, and like Sam said, it's really like epidemiology 101 gets science, but it's reproducible was like the first immediate challenge. We spent most of our initial time on. The second thing, funny enough, was just getting resources. Um, we, along with like getting dependencies in place and figuring out how to run the code reproducibly, we were like frantically calling friends at AWS to get like our resource limits lifted on our account. So we could run like ever larger machines with more and more cores and stuff like that. So we could run more scenarios. I think, I'm trying to think what, what else was really hard. Oh, and then I think just the inevitable, like when we came in and said, running these models, we, we created like the first like DevOps split this team had encountered. Like to that point, like the, the epidemiologists ran the models themselves. They ran them on the same hardware where they developed the models. And so they would do like a simple simulation or simple test run with like a few dozen simulations. Um, for context here, when we run these models, we don't, just, we don't just run like one scenario. We run thousands of scenarios because we want to see all these different possibilities and perturbations of how things could go. So we can have a kind of a fully informed like perspective on the epidemic. And one thing we found sometimes when we would run models in the quote, like production environment in AWS, instead of running, like when we would move from running from like tens of scenarios locally on a developer machine to thousands of scenarios, we would uncover like sort of subtle little bugs, like things that didn't quite work in, in production the way they worked in dev and a lot, you know, like you'd have a fire drill of trying to figure out the change. What was the source of the problem? all that kind of good classic release engineering stuff or less inventing on the fly in, in the course of a pandemic. I guess those are, those are like three of my favorites a couple of days. Yeah. What kind of interface did you want to provide to scientists that wanted to query the information in the model? So we really did the original kind of way the model was run was we would generate all these thousands of sim simulations. And then there was separate code, um, some R markdown code in particular, that would take the output of these simulations, uh, aggregate them, and construct a report. And that's actually in, the, in our COVID scenario pipeline repository in there. So amusingly, we had the problem of the, the output of these simulations would be, I mean, Sam, do you remember? It was like hundreds of gigabytes of data. Like we would generate a, an enormous amount of data doing this, that's right? right? Yeah. So the initial challenge was just how do we move this data back from the cloud to the local environment so they can run their reporting on it? And the honest answer was really just the combination of, you know, good old PBZip2 and, and then like SCP, more or less, right? 
that was the easy sort of stuff. We did some more interesting stuff later involving like running larger simulations, sort of true, true forecasting tools involving thousands of machines and AWS batch. And that was a different kind of interface challenge for the, for the epidemiologists to figure out how they could run that stuff themselves. From a reporting perspective, that was the, yeah, that was the initial challenge, at least right away. And I want to add that I think that like the kind of ethos that we had was we didn't want to like add a bunch of process and like change the way that epidemiologists work because they obviously uh, needed you know, to be able to do things that um, with a very, very tight timeline. And so really what it was is kind of building a wrapper around the ways that they kind of already work and just scaling that up as necessary. So you could write your um, thing in R or Python and all you would do is like have a way to scale that out across a bunch of machines. And you wouldn't necessarily, you could run like a small set of simulations on your local machine to see whether it worked. And then we could just kick it off on the cloud and like run it in a, in a massively parallel way to do, you know, much more sophisticated things and across much more scenarios and across much more simulations, right? And do a true like kind of MCMC type approach, right? And that was kind of the way that we could bridge the gap between people that didn't necessarily, you know, understand or even had the time to like learn how to do distributed systems work and, you know, to kind of get them to be productive and kind of create um, a lot more value there. Yeah. It was more of like they were conceptually familiar with the idea of running things on thousands of machines. You know, they understood we're going to take what we're doing on one machine and we're going to do it like a thousand times, you know, simultaneously on different machines. It was more just like abstracting away the mechanics, the plumbing of how exactly that works so they didn't have to worry about it. So just to be clear, these scientists are making actual decisions based on the model that you help them refurbish. Yeah, I mean, yes, very much so. This, I mean, this is their model. It's a model they built. It, like we didn't, we didn't help them. Ref- we really like, we didn't change. So first of all, to be clear, for the first couple of days, I didn't even look at the code. And I wasn't going to change any of their code, even in situations when they asked me to go ch- like change and performance critical parts of the code, just because I didn't really understand it. And it was not my focus. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to do anything that would change their understanding of how things worked. It was a, it was really a very pure lift and shift kind of thing. That changed over time. Like over time, they would say, hey, we have this piece of the code and it's really slow. We don't know why. Can you help us figure out why? Can you like help figure out what's going on and see if there's a way to optimize it? And, you know, for that stuff, it was generally speaking, you know, like Sam, right? Like pretty straightforward software performance profiling stuff. We used a lot of profile tooling. What's it, Sam, what did you use Python performance tooling? No C profile, I think, for most of the things. C profile, yeah. Just going through and like identifying hotspots, and once we found them, like talking about what they were doing and how they could do it faster and that kind of thing. But yeah, it was, it was very much their model. It's it was it was not our model. We are not epidemiologists, um, and we, I guess, like I think particularly for me, like since I was I was working, we were working with actual experts in the field. I never felt like any obligation to pretend that I was in expert in epidemiology or even like understood this stuff. I was just there to provide whatever software and cloud support they needed to get their job done. That was my only role. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that there, you know, maybe like three phases of involvement that we kind of had, which was the first one was like kind of panic at the disco, which is like the first part of mid-March there, like March, I think 16th through the 20th, which was like a kind of a crisis rescue kind of effort. Let's build a, a model of the epidemic to help understand um, for California what's going on, right? And that was kind of just a bunch of all-nighters that were there. 
the second kind of phase of involvement after those initial, you know, 48 hours or a couple of days were how do we take a model that, and scale it and make it iterate quickly, right? So some of the model that took like six or eight hours for a single state or four to five days for the entire country, how do we get it down to running in minutes, right? And that was basically doing a lot of kind of elbow grease and basically, you know, optimization, a lot of profiling, understanding hotspots, understanding memory usage, figuring out the resources that were being constrained and then, you know, working around it, right? And I think you know, there are a bunch of kind of core principles that you can talk about, like how we kind of got there. And then the third piece was kind of taking the cloud out for a spin where kind of, you know, expand what's possible in epidemiology by doing state-of-the-art stuff by we could run, you know, we got to do a lift and shift into the cloud. Can we run a massive simulation, right, across thousands of machines? Um, and what we ended up doing or, uh, together was kind of building out like an MCMC type approach using Metropolis Hastings to, to do that. And be able to do much more sophisticated modeling and simulate kind of the epidemic curve. Um, and just to set context, like that piece would require, I mean, the number I have written down here is 100 million computer hours in May. So like it was just, is a pretty massive um, kind of effort for that, that third piece. And, and each one of those kind of pieces had like different kind of modes of operating and um, different kind of software challenges in each kind of those three pieces. It was funny. We were we were working with some great folks from AWS. Um, AWS was absolutely wonderful. Like by the way, um, money resources um, in particular. Pierre Aquilante and, and, and Greg Thurman um, were or sorry, Greg excuse me, were uh, just absolutely like they basically gave us like our own solution architects and stuff to help out with the stuff. It was fantastic. And you know, it was funny. It was like after we do, we were after we were kind of finishing what Sam described as phase two, we were optimizing the single node runs. We kept challenging. The folk at Hopkins, like, what would you do if you could have a thousand computers, you know, doing doing this stuff? And that was really where they came up with the MCMC approach, like kind of a, which is really much more closer to a true, like forecasting scenario, which is really what everyone wants. And then, yeah, then we then we were on the hook to kind of build it with them because we we said it could be done and they were like, OK, well, prove it. <laughs> and then we had to go do it. It was great. How does this project compare to other data engineering projects you've worked on in the past? That's a great question. Sam, why don't you take that one first? I'm going to think about that. Uh, I mean, the stakes are much higher for sure, right? Um, yeah. yeah. Different yeah. story of the site is down and that, hey, you know, people are going to die. So there's a there's a, certainly a, a much deeper uh, sense of stakes. I think the other one was different kind of cultures of working, right? So you have a completely different styles of working with the public health officials to epidemiologists to like Silicon Valley engineers, right? And like, how do you weave those cultures together so that you can kind of work together in a way that you've never worked together before. Right. And that hasn't worked before. Um, and so that was, I think like a interesting challenge around kind of building trust. Um, and then just understanding that people have different ways of working, different styles. And they required a lot, you know, uh, a bridging of the gap from everyone involved to like learn a little bit about the other person's field and the way that they kind of their style of working. Um, and then the kind of things that they develop on and kind of being able to connect all those pieces together. Yeah, absolutely. This was, I mean, this was by far like the most fun I've ever had. Like it really was like by far the most rewarding working experience of my life. It was, I mean, it was fantastic. The stakes, as, as Sam said, the mission, the people, the tools. Yeah, this was just, I just really, I was, it was an absolute privilege to get to do this. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, more so than any any job I've ever had. How big was the overall developer team working on the project? 
So yeah, so it changed over time. It evolved kind of as things went. At first, it was us, Sam and myself, uh, and the folks Hopkins. There's a developer there named Joshua Kaminsky, uh, who was kind of the overall like architect person, but the the PI for the group, Justin Lessler, like still writes code and still writes codes pretty, you know, like writes like good code, right? Let's see, Elizabeth Lee, one of the another one of the PIs in, in the department. There were different epidemiologists who were handling runs for different states. And Elizabeth was was really in charge of California. So that was like five people. And then I let's see, over time we expanded it with a couple of few folks from AWS, Pierre and Greg, I mentioned, um, Karthik Raman was fantastic for performance profiling. And then Josh's wife, Catherine, is also a software developer and she joined the project when we were doing the large scale cloud batch jobs and stuff like that. So really like, you know, fewer than 10 people sort of all together doing most of the heavy lifting. Um, But there were other, you know, there were other efforts as well, folks working on dashboards and integrating you know, lots of different predictions together. Um, so I think the whole sort of, we, we, we obviously, you know, like first thing you do when you're standing up a new project, you create a Slack team. And so we created a Slack team. And I think at our peak, there were something like 80 people in, in there in various capacities. Yeah. Let's talk more about the data itself. So where was the data coming from and what data are we talking about? Yeah, so it's a, the data is, there are a couple of different pieces of data, right? One, which is um, the historical infection counts and that that was coming in from the Johns Hopkins uh, pipeline that was being developed. Um, There was also a bunch of data around hospital and ICU capacity. And that was actually really challenging because there is no real database of what that um, actually is in the state of California. And so what ended up happening was people were just calling various hospitals that are saying, okay, how much ICU capacity do you have? Um, how many beds do you have? What's your surge capacity, et cetera. And just kind of writing that stuff down or Aaron putting it into a spreadsheet and just doing that, you know, continually to basically build that data set. There are other data sets around understanding mobility patterns of like how people were moving. Um, and that kind of understands how you can see um, seeding and, and spread of, of um, the epidemic uh, across county borders and things like that, right? Um, so there's definitely a, a lot of different pieces of data. Oh, census data around like how many people are around, um, things like that. So there's definitely like a large data integration problem of numerous data sets all over the place to kind of bring this stuff to bear. Yeah. You have to imagine, Jeff, that, you know, when these infections, when these pandemics start, they reports right? The people land at airports. Then the question is, statistically speaking, where airports travel to after that? And then the next question is like, okay, where do people who live in certain counties, like what is the commuting relationship between different counties? How is, how is the infection going to spread from county A to county B based on historical commuting patterns and all that kind of good stuff? And then for the hospitalization side, there's a lot of questions around, you know, obviously how rapidly does this spread? How many people who get infected are going to get sick enough to be hospitalized? How many people who get hospitalized or need to be in an ICU? These kinds of things. Epidemiologists are like working to figure out as best they can with limited information, you know, in real time based on what they, what people had seen in Wuhan, Italy and that kind of thing. The importance, I think, of the kind of modeling we were doing was we were running all these different simulations because there was just so much stuff that was unknown that we know relatively little, of course, about coronavirus now, a lot more than we did back in March. 
And so understanding like the spectrum of possibilities from like outrageously bad to the relatively benign is, is absolutely important in like making decisions and understanding because the data isn't perfect, because our knowledge isn't perfect, we have to run a lot of simulations to have a real understanding of what the, what the possibilities are. How reliable is the data? Um, I mean, it was generally speaking good data. I mean, the census makes good data. Oh, the nice thing about the, uh, you know, like the sort of case counts from the, I mean, I, I would say like the, the weak link obviously was, was uh, the case counts themselves, like uh, Hopkins, the New York Times, the COVID tracking project, everyone is making their best effort to collect this data as fast as they can. But of course, mistakes are going to get made. And of course, because of the limitations around testing and stuff like that, we were, you know, you're getting a very heavily censored sample. It was only the sickest people could even get a test, right? And so you have to compensate for those limitations in your modeling. But I mean, generally speaking, you know, given the cadence we were operating under of, of doing like a couple of these runs a week for various states and for the country and stuff like that, it was, it was generally fine. We were generally in pretty good shape. Yeah. Tell me more about the architecture of the data pipeline. So the really the interesting pipeline to work on was doing like the large scale, the large scale batch pipeline by far. So the way the, the, the algorithm worked was we were basically going to create a situation where we would generate some parameters for our model, create a projection, like a sort of forecast, basically based on those parameters, what the future would look like compare the projection to what actually happened, what we knew actually happened over the next, over the sort of several weeks, and then update the parameters based on the error in those projections and run things again. And we were going to do this thousands of, with sort of different conditions um, across thousands of machines. You know, I think one sort of principle we had for this project uh, was that as much as possible, we did not want to be in the business of running servers or running clusters or anything like that. And so working with the folks at AWS, uh, we settled pretty quickly on using uh, AWS Batch to do these simulations, to do these runs. We were running in order to kind of keep costs down, given like the millions and millions of compute hours we were doing. Uh, we were using spot uh, optimized instances. And so because, uh, as you all know, AWS Spot, the machine can disappear at basically any time out from underneath you. So we wanted to do runs uh, with like pretty frequent checkpointing so that we would be able to restart if we like lost a machine or, or for whatever reason. Um, and so the way things would work is we would kick off these enormous, what are called array jobs in AWS Batch. So an array job is basically a hundred copies of a job that are virtually identical to each other. They just have one environment variable that indicates like which job in the array this is, job one, job two, job three, so on and so forth. Uh, and then we would chain these array jobs together. So we have a sequence of like, if we wanted to do, say, I don't know, 100 simulation or 100 runs of the MCMC algorithm, we would break it up uh, into 10 runs of 10 simulations a piece. And then those 10 runs would happen. They would write to S3. The next job in the sequence would then start itself up. It would know where to look basically based on its job identifier for the output of the previous run. And then it would kick itself off and then go do another 10 runs and so on and so forth. And then we had some code that would basically gather up all these outputs from S3 and restructure them into a way the epidemiologists were expecting to work with for reporting purposes uh, and then notify everybody when they were done. So it was, this was my first time using AWS Batch in kind of a professional capacity. Um, I was not familiar with it before. Uh, and I, I generally learned 
I think as is always the case, like a lot about the ins and outs of how Batch worked. Um, it's built on top of, of ECS, the Elastic Container Service. And it's it's funny, it's like, you know, we're doing these batch runs and generally speaking, when you're doing a batch job, you don't, you know, you're optimizing for throughput, not latency. You want like the whole job to finish, um, but you don't really care when any individual job finishes. But we occasionally had like deadlines where, you know, some very important person was waiting on the output of these runs. And so we had to do various things. We kind of had to learn how to uh, sort of goose POS batch. I don't really know how to describe it. We were basically wanted to, I guess. We would force it to provision more machines. I think like, you know, another one of our principles in working on this project, along with like never run a server, um, is is throw money at problems wherever possible. Like don't, you know, don't worry about like optimizing the code. Like don't spend an hour optimizing the code, just like fire up a bigger instance or whatever. Um, and so we, we made liberal use of, of Amazon's money uh, to run things as fast as we could without necessarily being super concerned about efficiency in, in a number of cases. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's large scale pipeline stuff. Weird things happen, weird stuff fails. Um, S3 is fantastic, but sometimes the data doesn't show up exactly when you expect it to. So you have to have little like hacks in place for that. But yeah, in, in the sense of like, it was very much a, a classic, you know, massively parallel uh, data pipelining problem. And like I said, it was it was great fun. It was it was yeah to be able to use like the skills that we had developed in other places at LinkedIn, at Google, Cloudera, uh, and in our you know Slack and all that kind of stuff in service of science <laughs> uh, during a pandemic was amazing. And the thing I would add to what Josh said, I think, is that, you know, this was obviously a massive data pipeline, but we were not just running it for California. At that point, we were running it for numerous other states and other countries and other kind of partners. And so we just not also need to make sure that, like, each kind of region or, or partner was going to be separate and being able to manage across the different types of data that was used for each different partner in an effective and meaningful way. Um, and that's something that was actually a very, very big challenge at the beginning of the project, where just like managing all the different data sets and the different data across different kinds of states and partners. Um, and we basically made a much more streamlined system where you could kind of have one region run kind of end to end in a kind of contained fashion. So we made sure there was no data leakage, which would cause problems and, and things like that. Yeah. Making it so that it was easy to plug in new data sources as we, as we brought on new partners, new states. Yeah, exactly. We could bring a new state on. Like, huge we, quality of life win. Yeah. Yeah. We just, like, we, and we did a work in that early, the, the sort of the early part of phase two to make that possible. And that was great. Yeah. To set a little context, like I think the beginning part of the, like every, you know, you have a lot of values that are hard coded and things like that in the code. And like, there's a lot of assumptions about the data and that moved to a much more configuration based system where everything is like a, a, basically a, a giant YAML file for every kind of partner or thing that you want to run. And then in each YAML file, the different scenarios, like a YAML file or one of these configuration files is self-contained. And all you do is give the system that, that configuration file and it just goes and takes everything, slurps up all the data and runs it. Um, and so an epidemiologist can just ask, all they have to do is generate the configuration file. And if they generate the configuration file, then they can just run it massively at scale and they can pull in all the data that they need. And they actually don't have to write any code to end almost you know, a lot of the basic parts of the simulation, right? That's right. But then, you know, along with that, when we're, before we kicked off on these, you know, gigantic pipelines, I think something any other, you know, data person will be familiar with is you're getting to kick off some massive long running job that's going to spend thousands of dollars of compute. And there's a tiny bug <laughs> or the configuration file is formatted or, or something like that, right? So as part of the kickoff process, we do have a step where we actually run locally like a single simulation basically on, on the kind of machine to make sure 
the thing basically work and like everything is, is going to be going to be reasonable and sane and all that kind of good stuff before we kick off the giant, giant job. Yeah. So did the model get slower every day as more and more data was being added? You know, I'm sure that it did. I think that was sort of so minor relative to the performance optimizing to the code. You know, everything from like switching out, we switched out the CSV files that we use for passing data, the different modules, you know, to use uh, Feather, which is the, the file format behind Apache Arrow. We, obviously, since we're using kind of this hybrid system where there's like a lot of Python code and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of R code all kind of like mixed together. Uh, that was a massive performance win. So I just think like the, it was, it was kind of a round off error compared to what we were doing to optimize things, fortunately. Yeah, just um, in context, like it would take about two minutes for us, you know, a, a decent run for a single state and 20 minutes for like the entire country um, after optimization. Um, and so then, you know, even if it like doubled from like two minutes to four minutes or 20 minutes to 40 minutes, like in, in the span of things that like, you, you, it doesn't really matter. Yeah, we were running for like hours before, like back in March when we got started. Before right. we were... Yeah, hours or days and so Yeah. Tell me about the hardest parts of building this pipeline. Oh, let's see. I would say, I think the hardest part for me was... was like, almost like you had to, everyone also had, you know, had to be their own kind of developer epidemiologist, but they also had to be their own kind of PM and like understand mm. what needed to be done next and like how things would connect together. Uh, because everything was just so fast moving and, you know, we would have new data, uh, or sorry, and new data, but also like new insights and new things that people would want us to do coming all the time. So, and, you know, we'd have deadlines that would show up like, you know, it would be, Hey, guess what? We can set this by five o'clock and it's already one o'clock. Right. And you're like, and so you had to understand, like, you know what you need to do next, but then you also know when to stop optimizing. You need to know like how much is it optimized enough. And in the context of like all these different kind of, uh, functions of epidemiology to public health and like understand kind of what needed to be done and, and be able to like deliver something uh, of value by the deadline. Right. And I think that was for me, the most challenging aspect of just like, basically everyone had to be their own PM. Right. I think, I think, I mean, I think Sam's right. And I, I think, you know, it, I think it's funny. I think when I think of like, especially that first week we were working, you know, crazy hours, just totally unsustainably. And I feel like we fell into a lot of the classic anti-patterns of like DevOps work for lack of, for lack of like structure and time, for lack of the fact this was like, this was not a company, this was not any one organization, it was a collaboration of a bunch of different people. And so, yeah, we didn't really have that product management capacity. We didn't have time to invest in like good tooling uh, and good processes, especially right away. And so while it was exhilarating, it was, it was absolutely exhausting, like early on to do that work. I, I mean, I think forever, I mean, and you know, to be fair, I think Sam and I got like the best end of this. I mean, the epidemiologists have been working on no sleep, you know, as you can imagine for weeks before we even got there, like we were, we were, you know, we were relief pitching in some sense for from them just so they didn't have to run some of the stuff themselves. But yeah, I think, I guess that's the part of it that is always kind of like, when I think of lessons learned from this, that's always kind of strange to me is like, without that overarching structure of a company or, or sort of a single organization, uh, it's hard to correct a lot of like the kind of bad habits and anti-patterns that you know you're not supposed to do, but you do anyway because it's expedient, you know? And that's like sort of like, like everything that's good and everything that's bad about, about this experience, we're all kind of wrapped up together in that. Yeah. 
you know, it's, you know, if you work at a company like Google or Facebook or any you know, Silicon Valley company or any tech company, you know how to build product, right? There's like a formula in some sense. I mean, you know how to kind of, you know, get it done. In this case, there was no formula to follow because it hadn't been done before, right? And so how do you create like a public-private partnership to be able to kind of go and deliver a product, you know, go deliver results um, in a way which is completely foreign to like everybody involved, right? And so we eventually got to some uh, a process that was there, but like, you know, that was a lot of kind of trial and error and, you know, two steps back, sorry, two steps forward, one step back. All right, a semi-political question. <laughs> we got to be careful with these, Jeff. We got to be careful. Is the lockdown actually necessary? What are we doing here? Uh, well, I mean, we're not in the lockdown anymore. <laughs> uh, I mean, we're happy to talk about software. I think like talking about like epidemiology and like public health, I think is like outside kind of our yeah. scope of expertise i'm happy to like double click anything about the software and like the team and things like that but like I- i'm just like a software engineer giving my opinion and i don't think that would be uh like, yeah i kind of added, add a ton of value at this point yeah i gotta agree we're, we're we're super not experts here and i don't i don't want to pretend like we are yeah not even some speculation come on you guys are unemployed <laughs> i think the the challenge also in in these kind of projects and working on it for a few months was like ignoring all the armchair epidemiologists that were on Twitter and that were in your inbox that were telling you things. And so like, I think like a big part of it is knowing what you know and being able to be effective um, is to be able to like bring like your A game on things that you know and, and, and really try to deeply understand like the kind of what's going on. But like, I think you have to understand also like where the boundaries of your knowledge are because I think that co- otherwise it causes a lot of problems and a lot of like unnecessary churn. And you can see that all over the place. I guess I mean, it's funny. I think in Silicon Valley, we have this kind of like love hate relationship with experts, right? Iconoclastic and we're very smart and we think figure anything out. I personally, and I think like, you know, I am unemployed, but I would like to be employed at some point in the future. I have a reverence for experts. I, I listen. I like science. I like scientists have their own set of incentives. Well, of course they do. Everybody does. Um, but I think one of the reasons that Cisco and the Bay Area have done so well with the pandemic is that we take science very seriously here. We believe scientists when they, I am not a scientist, but I, I do listen to them and I like follow their advice because they, even if they're not perfect, because no one is, they think what they think of as the best thing to do, information they have. What norms have changed most for you guys after the lockup, lockdown? I think, you know, I think like everybody, not everybody else, but like a lot of other people, I was doing this work uh, early on, you know, from home, from from like our tiny little apartment in San Francisco with my wife and my four-year-old son. And that was obviously very, very challenging as it would be for for every other parent, like like during this lockdown and stuff like that. So my all my heart and my empathy and everything like that goes out to every other parent out there. It's rough. I was very, very fortunate to be able to do it under the best possible really have. I spent a lot of time thinking about my mask. You know, there was, a, it was a great tweet someone had the other day, which is like, you know, I go outside and I'm like, I, I forget my mask and I'm like, Oh, I forgot my mask. Like I'm Spider-Man or something like that. That's, that's kind of how I feel in some ways. I feel like Spider-Man like, Oh, better not forget my mask. 
I don't know. Is it weird that I've kind of like grown accustomed to wearing masks now? And I kind of like it. Is that, I don't know what, I don't know what that's about. I may be the only person that feels that way, but that's, that's the strangest thing for me. Yeah. Sam. I'm someone who likes to meet people. So I think, you know, given the fact that serendipity has kind of gone to zero, it's a little challenging. And so you have to figure out ways to kind of go create serendipity and there aren't really great avenues to go do that. So that's something that I kind of like struggle with. And, and, and so that I think is, you just need to like kind of be cognizant of that, that just make sure you're doing the effort, even if you're meeting people virtually um, to meet new people and like kind of exercise those uses, especially for me, like who really uh, enjoys that just learning from other people, right. Having, figuring out venues and avenues to go do that. I am an introvert. And so I, I realize a lot of the stuff has not been as hard for me as it is for other people. But it's funny, I, I did get together last week for a socially distanced walk with a friend of mine. And I was like so excited to see him. I was so excited to see him. Like your old college friend or whatever. And this is just like an acquaintance, basically. This is not a, I was like so absolutely thrilled. I wanted, you know, I think you wanted to give him a hug and all that kind of good stuff. So yeah, like that. All right, you guys, anything else you want to add? I don't know what to say. It was, it was, it was great. I love doing it. It was an absolute privilege. I would recommend it to anyone. Like if you ever have the chance to serve, if you ever have the chance to use like things you know how to do, like use your, your special talent in service to do believe in. Uh, it's, it's just an absolutely rewarding, tremendous experience. I, would, I just cannot recommend it highly enough. Yeah. Yeah, for me, I think it was is that you know, being able to bring my skills and have the opportunity to kind of make a meaningful impact. And for, you know, for to something that is, you know, kind of outside of my domain, but provide that kind of expertise and, and really help move the needle was immense and incredibly rewarding experience. And I learned a lot from how to, you know, integrate across different kinds of modalities to like even learning a little bit of epidemiology. So it was a blast and I'm, I'm really glad to have the opportunity to do it. And I highly recommend people, if you have the chance to, you know, go try and volunteer for some of these projects, because fundamentally, like, they need software people um, to show them what's possible. And you'd be amazed at the kind of impact and value that you can add by just, you know, tell, telling them what you see and things that are that they could do that they can't do right now with computers, right? And we're still really much at the infancy of what, what's possible across many, many different domains. Okay, guys. Well, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Jeff. Jeff, thank you so much.